Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We are excited to have you back for another episode. Today, we are going to be hearing from the legendary luthier, Paul Hamer. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Hey, you guys, I'm really excited about today's episode. You know, it took me a couple of years to get to Paul Hamer to finally get an interview for the NAM Oral History Project. And boy, am I glad that finally worked out, not only because of the interview you're about to hear today, but because of a great friendship and relationship that we had started with him. Uh, And since our interview just a few years ago, back in 2017, he has helped us with several interviews of people that he has worked with, some of the uh, musicians that he built guitars for. So it's been a lovely relationship. And I have a feeling you're going to enjoy the story as much as I did. Um, And so today we're just going to do one of these Let It Rides. We're just going to play the full interview. We'll come in from time to time to talk a little bit about what he's talking about. But I really think this is a good opportunity to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the legends of the music products industry. What's exciting is that uh, you've been on my wish list for a couple of years, so I'm glad we could find you. Oh, well, that's awfully nice to hear. (laughs) You're on someone's wish list, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I thought maybe we could begin talking about is your passion for music and how that led you to a career in the music industry. Oh, sure, yeah. Did you have music in your house when you were a kid? Well, um... Yeah, to a degree. I mean, my uh, my great aunt played piano, and she wanted me to play piano from a very young age. So at the age of four, she started me on piano lessons, and uh, she actually paid to uh, rent a spinet piano and put it in my parents' apartment in Oak Park. And so uh, oh, I just couldn't stand the piano lessons, you know, and uh, I really disappointed her, and I, I know it was a terrible heartache for her that neither I nor any of my brothers and sisters took up the piano. But um, so then um, what really got my blood boiling was uh, uh, 1964, our uh, TV was broken and I had heard that the Beatles were going to be on Ed Sullivan. So uh, I asked my friend uh, uh, Arthur Miller and Donnie Miller, if I could go over to their house and watch the show with them. And they had a color TV, which not very many people had a color TV, at least in our neighborhood anyway. So, uh, yeah, we watched uh, the Beatles, and that was it. You know, I had to get a guitar. I had a paper route, so I saved up my money. Uh, I think my mom contributed some SNH green stamps, and uh, I got a, a silver tone acoustic guitar. And I started taking lessons, but in those days, um, lessons were really uh, regimented, and they were they were directed more towards sight reading. So, like my first lesson was 
the G note on the high E string. That was my first lesson. So I thought, oh, you know, maybe next week he'll show me a Beatles song. <laughs> but it just went on like that for like six weeks. And I was like, I'm learning notes. I don't even know from notes. Uh, it's just not interested in me. So I put the guitar away in a closet and uh, I just gave it up. But I was, uh, uh, I was, I loved music even before the Beatles. Uh, I had talked my mother into buying a uh, radio for the house. And so I just sit and listen to the radio and eventually I commandeered it, brought it to my room and I would listen to music. And one of the things that I remember from being a kid that was really fascinating for me was uh, I loved to read and so I would lay down, read and listen to music. And so I started associating the songs that were on the radio with what I was reading. And so it was a really nice mixture of stuff, you know. So, um, like what's an example of that? Well, like I hear Telstar today, yeah, and immediately I'm reading Treasure Island. You know, it's just it's boom, I'm reading Treasure Island, you know. Uh, cool. And that continued all, all through my teenage years. Hmm. Um, but then uh, an odd thing happened. Uh, so I was into the Beatles, but I wasn't a musician, but I loved long, having long hair and being cool, you know. And uh, so I was one of the few kids in the school that had long hair, and, and one day I got thrown out. The assistant principal grabbed me, sent me home. So I had to go tell my dad that I got thrown out of school and my mom. And my dad was a uh, former Marine. He was a Republican. He was a lawyer. And so I said, uh, got thrown out, Dad, you know. He goes, well, you got to cut your hair and go back, or you got to go get a job. There's no two ways about it. So I spent three weeks trying to get a job. No one would hire me because I had long hair. <laughs> so um, I went back to him and I said, Dad, you know, I, I want to go back to school. Can you find a way to get me back in? And he said, okay. He would look at the law, see what the law said about my situation. And he found that they, the school had acted illegally. And he, he sued them for $10 million. And uh, when he filed the lawsuit, uh, in those days, they had, uh, they had stringers at all the courthouses that would look at the filings for the day. And if anything was newsworthy, they would tell them, they would, you know, call the newspaper and say, this is happening. So immediately the Tribune picked it up, the Sun-Times picked it up, and then all the TV stations came out and interviewed me. And then it went worldwide and I got interviewed by the London Daily Mail and uh, the New York Times and, you know, just, uh, so we started getting all this hate mail from all over the world. You know, like, what are your kids stupid for having long hair? Get, tell them to cut it. Why aren't you guys good parents? We got death threats. And uh, my dad was running for state's attorney that year. And, you know, he, he took on this lawsuit even though he knew it wasn't going to be good for him. And uh, he lost. I remember uh, standing with him, handing out literature, and People would grab it from him and tear it up in front of him and throw it in his face. One parent spat on him. 
So um, it was, you know, it was uh, uh, an interesting time. But he won. I got back into school. He settled on a dollar on principle. He wanted to have the, the school district write him a check for one dollar. I thought that was pretty cool. So um, after that, one night we were home, we got a call from another parent. And the parent said, uh, you know, uh, thanked my dad for getting me back into school. And uh, or, or, or what the lawsuit did was overturn dress codes in the state of Illinois. So now girls could wear uh, pants to school, guys could have long hair. And uh, so this parent was saying, thanks, my son's back in school now. And as a thank you, I want to offer, uh, I'm a guitar teacher, I'll offer to give your son guitar lessons for free. And so uh, my dad was on the phone going, you want free guitar lessons? <laughs> I said, Sure. And what was great about that was that this guy, his name was Bob Gand, um, and he uh, had taken guitar lessons at the original Old Town School of Folk Music. And they taught a different style. They taught chords. They taught songs from the first lesson, and they taught singing. Well, I, I never got the singing part down, but uh, I just fell in love with the way they taught. And so I took lessons from him, and after six months, he came to me one night and he said, uh, hey, you want to teach? And so I started teaching other kids guitar at, the, at his, he called it the Village School of Folk Music. And it was on the second floor uh, in Deerfield above uh, a shoe repair shop. And it was, he just did lessons. And then uh, he thought, well, he was uh, an advertising uh, executive. So he was, no, he was a salesman, and in the evening he did guitar lessons. And so um, he came to me and said, uh, you want to open up a store for me? Uh, you know, you could come after school and you could open the store at 4 o'clock and then I'll get here at 6.30 for the lessons and that way maybe we'll sell, sell some stuff. And so that's how I got in the music business was, was 1968. That is really fascinating. I didn't know that about your dad. That's yeah, really yeah. He was a great guy. Sounds great like guy. It. Sounds like it. He was. Uh, he believed in the law. And if the law didn't say it, you couldn't convince him that it was right. So when you said he lost, you meant he lost the run that he was. He lost the election for the state's elections. attorney. Yeah. But he actually won the lawsuit. He won the lawsuit. And got paid a dollar. And got paid a dollar. Did they say what the judgment was? He settled on a dollar just because it was for principal purposes, yeah. right? Yeah. He wanted me back in school, and uh, he wanted kids treated fairly. And uh, it changed, you know, changed everything in, in the nation, really, because uh, the ACLU contacted him, and they used it as the basis for the lawsuits in other states. So uh, very quickly, the dress codes were overturned in the country, legally. You know, there may have been schools that were looking the other way, but legally, it overturned dress codes in the, in the, in the, in the nation. So you didn't wind up cutting your hair? No, no. <laughs> Much to my family's chagrin, they, uh, my family did not like long, me having long hair. You know, my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents, they, they went along with it, but they would have been very happy had I had short hair. You know? 
And really, you can blame all this on the Beatles, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's all their fault. <laughs> and another interesting point is, uh, years ago, I got to interview Bob Gann, which I found... Oh, you know Bob Gann, then. Fascinating guy. Yeah, he is a very interesting man. He was in the right place at the right time. In fact, you know, I'm a collector of collections, and... Uh, I remember, oh, one of the things about Bob Gann that you'd like is, uh, in terms of this connection with me to him, is that uh, I think I was a freshman in high school, or maybe it was late eighth grade, and I used to watch endless television, and I was watching television at 10.30 on a Sunday night, Channel 5, NBC in Chicago, and suddenly they go, we're going to have a half-hour music program featuring Bob Gann and the Gann family singers. And I'm like, who are these guys, you know? <laughs> then I watched the whole show. And so as I'm watching it, I'm looking at, the, at, at everybody, and they were really good, you know? And uh, so then at high school, two of the girls that were in the band were in my school. And so I got to know them, and they became my girlfriends at different points, you know? And, uh, and they, were, they were great musicians and great, great singers. That's really neat. Yeah. <laughs> and I also like the point that you made that um, he was among those music teachers who made lessons accessible and interesting. Yeah. This is the, this is the most important thing that's missing in, in today. And, and this, is, this, this, will, this, uh, this will either be uh, the thing that makes or breaks the music industry, I think, for the future is, is whether or not... Uh, uh, you're bringing new kids into the industry. And uh, I mean, this is the lifeblood of the industry. In the old days, it wasn't fun to be, uh, to be in that aspect of the, in the, of the industry because it was very often predatory. Uh, so for instance, you, if you went to an old line music store and you signed up for lessons, after you'd rent something, you know, after about four weeks they'd go, kid's really good needs a Gibson ES-335. And that's the only way he's ever going to be good if he bought a top-of-the-line instrument, right? So that predatory aspect of the business changed with guys like Bob Gant. What they wanted to do is they wanted to rent uh, uh, inexpensive, nice acoustic guitars and get kids playing. And uh, they weren't so concerned about selling him something. That would come later. Also, I was talking about Bob Gandon and collecting stuff. So I just recently, I remembered that he was on a poster that was sold in Old Town in the old days. You know, like, uh, come to Old Town, and they had pictures of everything that was happening there. And there he's there, and he's, uh, he was, uh, he didn't, uh, he was bald at that point. He had a long mustache, and he dressed like, uh, an 1880s piano player, and he was playing banjo. <laughs> and Bob Gann could play anything, you know? He was a big band leader, he could play trumpet, he could play guitar, he could play um, mandolin, harmonica, banjo. He played everything. Yeah, what an incredible guy. Yeah. And he kept it together, you know? Mm. And through real difficult times, so. Very admirable. And I was really good friends with his son, Gary. We, uh, we became best friends in high school. And That's neat. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. 
I went to his uh, uh, memorial service. Um, me and my mother went, uh, was it last year, two years ago? So Gary and I reconnected, and uh, so I, I sent him emails every once in a while, mm -hmm. taunt him about something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's great, and I love his wife, Joan. They're yeah. spectacular people. Yeah. yeah, that's neat. So that was Paul talking a little bit about his childhood, and I think my favorite part about this story is, one, the support of his parents, which is amazing. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and how far he was willing to go just to keep his long hair. I think that was quite the aspect and just kind of brought to light what kind of amazing relationship and bond that he had with his family. Plus, I think it's always been sort of an under theme of the Oral History Project to include sort of the social settings of the people that we interview, not just their careers. And this is a great example of that. I mean, imagine having to fight to wear your hair a certain length and be influenced by the Beatles. And I mean, all of that was fantastic as far as I was concerned. Also, he mentioned uh, Bob Gann just a few minutes ago, and uh, we got to interview Mr. Gann uh, before he passed away. And what an interesting guy. Um, I thought this would be a good time for Mike to plug where folks could go to see other interviews because throughout this interview, uh, Paul's going to be talking about several people like Mr. Gann and uh, Rick Nielsen and others that we've interviewed. So where can folks go to listen to other web clips? If you'd like to uh, watch any of our interviews online, you can head over to namnamm.org slash library, and you'll see all of our the full collection there, uh, including Bob Gand and Paul Hamer. So moving forward, we're going to start talking about Paul's career a little bit. Um, he's going to be talking about how he entered the music industry through teaching and some of his aspirations while he was teaching. So um, Bob got you... Teaching is that how you sort of entered the industries? Yeah, mm -hmm. how did that develop? Well, uh, I would go after school and uh, I would do one-on-one -on -one classes. Gary was also teaching, and so I got all the students that Gary didn't want. <laughs> so uh, one of my students was Dean Zielinski, and. Uh, Boy, I can't remember this other kid's name. Uh, Dean's best friend was also one of my students. He died very early of cancer, and, and then when Dean was in the guitar industry, he named a guitar after uh, this kid. I can't remember. I'm losing his name at the moment. But uh, yeah, so Dean was one of my students, and uh, and so I went along for 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 a while, you know. And then probably I stopped teaching sometime in high school later you know like maybe senior year i stopped teaching and what were your aspirations at that point i want to be in a rock and roll band you know gary gand he's he is a great musician and uh in those days he was probably the best guitar player in the midwest he was really good he had an ear for music and uh, he taught me all sorts of interesting things. He, he had taken lessons from a guy that was older than him that knew uh, American blues and had gotten very early on in the British blues, and he had told Gary about it. And uh, he also showed him a technique uh, that, that I ended up adopting, and of course every, every kid adopted it, uh, you know, found this on their own, but Gary showed it to me, 
which was uh, putting on a record, getting your guitar out, trying to, how did he do that? What was that note? So Gary had this nice, you know, his folks were, they were mu the music people, so they didn't, the, their house was like, uh, it was set up for music, you know. So they had a living room and they had a dining room, but they didn't have a dining room table in the dining room. They had Gary's Vox amp, they had a turntable, they had a stereo, and Gary would just put, the, and he'd show me how he did it, you know. So that was really, that was really uh, uh, very important for me, is to learn how to play uh, stuff off records and I didn't have a good ear in those days and my, I was I maybe I was tone deaf at that point I could not just when I first started playing I could not hear different notes you know they all sounded the same to me and so uh, but over the years I, I trained my ear uh, to detect pitch and uh, uh, it was through trying to listen to records and get my guitar at that that note you know that's really neat. Yeah. So that was important. Uh, the other thing that was interesting in those days is that uh, you had no uh, communication with uh, people that you admired musically other than really their records. So there were fanzines, but the, the magazines were, were, you know, kind of like uh, um, teeny bopper magazines, you know, they were they're they're aimed towards a younger market, and so they they didn't have the stuff in it that we wanted. You know, they, there was no talk about blues guys or British British musicians, and so uh, you had to learn stuff from the records. Or the other thing was live concerts, and so uh, we started going down to the Electric Theater when it opened, and. Uh, hanging out down there and seeing as many acts as we could afford, you know. Mm. We saw great music. I was going to ask you, who did you see? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, one of the best nights, one of the most inspirational nights for me uh, was, uh, it was a Saturday night. It was Zeppelin, first time in Chicago. Mm. Um, Jethro Tull, first time in Chicago. And Savoy Brown first time in Chicago and I ended up working later on with two of those bands. I never did anything with Zeppelin but uh, Martin Barr, Jethro Tull became one of my close friends, still today close friend. Kim Simmons from Savoy Brown, uh, I just saw him, I don't know, maybe a year ago. Super nice guy, great guitar player. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, uh, we saw um, Janis Joplin all the time, I mean, multiple times. Uh, Santana used to play all the time. Uh, uh, Albert King. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was just tons and tons of people. Uh, and then what? One of the things that uh, the Electric Theater did is they had a Tuesday night jam session, where anybody could come down, and on a Tuesday night you could get up on stage and jam. So one night uh, Gary says, hey, it's Tuesday night, let's go down to the jam session. And so I thought, okay, yeah, let's go. So we went down and uh, we, we, got, we got there, we sat right in front of the stage waiting for things to happen. Somebody comes out and says, uh, you know what, uh, we're going to postpone the jam session for a little bit because we got a band that's auditioning for Epic Records tonight. And uh, so this band comes out. And I remember two things about the band, aside from the, they were great. Uh, the, the lead guitar player, when he played a lead, 
puckered his lips in some kind of unusual fashion, you know, and that the other guitar player played guitar and keyboards. Which I thought, well, was, you got to be pretty good to play those two instruments, you know. And they did these wonderful guitar harmonies, and uh, and this was, uh, I don't know, it was October of 68, maybe? And um, turned out it was uh, Rick Nielsen uh, with his band. Uh, at that time, they called themselves the Grim Reapers. And then they got signed, and Epic changed their name to Fuse. So I saw his audition night. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was a very important connection for me. Yeah, because you two got together later on. Yeah. Yeah, also through Gary to a degree because Gary had something called the Incredible Light Show. And he did, uh, uh, he'd set up these screens and uh, behind a band and then project images and do the, the gels and, uh, and play movies. And, uh, and he worked at a club called uh, Heads Up out in Round Lake Beach. And uh, he always needed help. He needed somebody to drive him because he didn't have a driver's license. <laughs> So his mom asked me, Paul, would you drive Gary to these gigs? So I said, okay. So I would drive the van, and then I would help him at the light show. And uh, turns out, Fuse played at this club like once every three months or something. And they were great. I remember them walking in the club, and they, I, I remember they had the coolest guitars, the coolest amps, and the prettiest girls <laughs> that were following them. And uh, so uh, I saw them. Gary and I saw them many times, and uh, so it was kind of a series of, of meetings over the years that uh, kind of brought us together. The next segment you're about to hear is a little bit about how he developed his business, Hamer Guitars, and some of the processes that he went through and how he grew that business up. So where did the idea of uh, your company come from? How did that develop? Oh, that's a good story. I mean, it's an interesting story because I think it's apropos to people today, you know. So, um, I started out uh, collecting guitars in 68, and Gary collected guitars too. And um, then I, I, I was getting some pretty cool stuff, and I wanted to show them to English rock and roll bands, you know, and try to sell them to them. So I'd go backstage at the different shows and say, hey, guys, want to buy some guitars, you know? So the word got around and, uh, and people started calling me. And I was in my parents' house and I had a, uh, uh, a playroom full of instruments. And uh, then I'd go downtown and bring them to the shows and, and uh, sell them guitars backstage. And um, then um, that led to op opening up a a used music store for vintage instruments. It's one of the first ones in the country. In those days, the only, uh, I opened in August of 72 in Wilmette. And the only other guy that I knew of at that time was uh, George Gruen in uh, Nashville. And then, or, you know, later on there, we there developed a uh, group of guys that in New York City, St. Louis, Minneapolis, who uh, kind of all work together a little bit, trade, buy, sell, trade. And uh, so uh, I was, uh, I was uh, getting these old guitars, and sometimes they're broken. I didn't know how to fix them. 
And so I try to fix them, and uh, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And it was a trial and error method. But I could play guitar, so uh, uh, I knew what it was supposed to do, and uh, eventually I learned how to do that. But uh, sometimes I'd get stuff in that was cracked, you know, or the bridge was off, or the peg head was broken. I didn't know how to repair that stuff. But there was a guy at another music store in town who was a, uh, a violin, cello, bass repairman. And he knew how to work with wood. And so uh, I talked to him and I said, uh, you know, why don't, why, why don't we do this together and you, you can work in the evening at your place and I'll, I'll bring stuff over to you and then you do the wood repairs, I'll do the setups and uh, the electronics and, uh, and, you know, we started out that way. And then an interesting thing happened. Gibson uh, had a problem where they had put the, the tunematic bridges on Les Pauls in the wrong place. And they were not playing in tune. And I had been buying parts from the Gibson factory on stuff that I needed. And I had gone up there a couple times and met the guys. And, uh, and so they said, Paul, would you be a warranty repair station? So kids in Chicago, instead of shipping them all the way up here, they just come to you, uh, you move the bridge, we'll pay you, and uh, we'll do it like that. And so uh, that's how I started a relationship with Gibson. And uh, I would call them all the time and I would say, you know, uh, I got an idea for you guys. Why don't you take the, you know, those Les Pauls that you're making, but why don't you put curly maple tops on them? Because you just have all these, these bland tops that don't look cool, you know. Do you curly maple? No. Then I'd say, well, uh, you know, these new pickups you guys are making, they're, they're not very powerful. Can you make the pickups more powerful and then maybe I could buy some pickups from you? And uh, no. So uh, I found out later that this was happening to different people all over the country. It wasn't just me that was calling them and telling them this. It was other people like... Uh, Larry DiMarzio in New York City started out repairing guitar pickups and would call Gibson for parts and tell him the same thing. There was a kid in California that was calling and telling Fender the same thing, you know, well, why don't you make these guitars out of solid ash like you used to in the 50s, you know. And uh, they were, they turned everybody down. Because that wasn't their focus at that time, they just, uh, uh, so these companies had become corporately owned. And so the further away, in my opinion anyway, the further away that you get from your customer, the less likely it is that you're going to be able to do anything good and that you'll always be following trends rather than creating trends because the trend starts with the musician trying to get a sound. And uh, that's the key to... Uh, to everything in music, whether, you know, what doesn't matter the instrument, what piano, uh, clarinet, saxophone, whatever the, the musician's trying to do, you as a manufacturer are trying to, to help them get whatever sound they want. And uh, so they, they ignored uh, these uh, requests. And so uh, one time I, I went, the, this, the woodworker uh, repairman was a guy by the name of John Montgomery. And he was a super nice guy. He was a lot older than I was, but for some reason he liked me. And uh, I went to him one day and I said, you know, uh, 
we're doing all this repair work, we're doing refinishing stuff. Why don't we build a guitar? He goes, I've never built a guitar before. I said, I've never built a guitar before. I know what it's supposed to do, you know. And so uh, I had the idea to build, uh, kind of going back a little bit, I, I went to, I was at Woodstock in 69, and uh, when I came back home, Gary was like, oh, you went to Woodstock, wow, that's so cool. So the following year, he heard of a festival in Iowa, and he said, would you take me to this festival in Iowa, because you know all about music festivals. And I said, okay. And we went to this festival in Iowa, and since I had been at Woodstock, I, I rem had remembered that the stage at Woodstock, they had a little platform slightly below the stage where people were sitting. So I said to Gary, I said, you know, they got a little pit in front of the stage usually. Well, let's try to sit in there, you know. <laughs> so we got there early and we went right into the pit. We just sat there, you know. And everybody just assumed we were there for something, you know. And, uh, so we spent the whole festival right in the press pit, and we got to walk backstage and meet everybody. And uh, Fuse was playing, Johnny Winter, uh, and then this Leon Russell guy. So Leon Russell had a guitar player in his band who played an explorer. And I had never seen an explorer before. And I thought, wow, that is a really cool looking guitar. And I thought, well, what if I took that shape, put a curly maple top on it, and uh, built a guitar that looked like that, sunburst finish, you know, binding like a Les Paul, made it make a uh, uh, Explorer look like a Les Paul. So I did that, and uh, uh, one of the first guys I showed it to uh, was a band called um, Wishbone Ash. The bass player ordered a bass, and I said, "No, no, I, the, I don't do this. Uh, the, it's just this. I just built this for myself. I'm just showing it to you. I'm not, not going to do another one." So, oh no, I want a bass, and I want it in a black sparkle finish. And okay, do it. I'm like, "No." Okay, so I thought I'll get I'll, I'll get him to not do it by giving him a price that is so exorbitant that he wouldn't pay it. I said, "850." <laughs> he goes, "Sold." So then I was, I had to get a, I had to do a bass. And then I showed the guitar to uh, Rick. He, he ordered a guitar, I showed it to Martin Barr and Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull, they ordered guitars. And so very, at the very beginning, the instrument was being played on stage in front of a lot of people every night. And it was so unusual looking, people had not, most people, I mean everybody had never seen it before, you know, so uh, it got some name recognition very early on. And that eventually, after a couple of years, led me to NAM. So did you call it Hamer from the very beginning? Yeah. And did you put it on the headstock? Right well, away? the first guitar had nothing on the headstock. Oh. <laughs> and since I was a warranty repair station, after a little bit, I put a Gibson logo on it to really confuse people. <laughs> and I thought, that's not fair to them. So I took that off and uh, eventually uh, put Hamer on it. It had no serial number even. No kidding. Yeah. So uh, years later, I put a zero 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 on it. <laughs> what year was that? I finished the guitar December seventh, nineteen seventy four. I finished it at five o'clock in the afternoon, and I had to order 
my first order at 8.30. <laughs> the same night. Wow. So, uh, I mean, it was just an unexpected kind of cascading thing, series of events. And, uh, and Nam played an important part in that, you know. Uh, and I had to learn all sorts of lessons that were not pleasant in this process. And, uh, but it ended up being lessons that have stood me well for the rest of my life. Such as? Well, uh, so very early on, uh, I had he always heard about NAM as a kid because they were held in Chicago. And uh, Gary and his dad used to go to him. And I just, I, I never had a desire to go because I liked everything old. So I said, what's there for me there? It's just new stuff, you know. Uh, so, um, after starting to build uh, guitars, um, the first thing I did was I wanted to get a dealer in New York City. And so I flew to New York City, rented a hotel room, and invited the 48th Street dealers to come to my hotel room. I put on a little mini show. Only one guy showed up. <laughs> but it was, um, oh, what was his name? He was from a, a chain called Grayson's. And, uh, Oh, well, he was the guy that's, that ended up buying uh, Kramer. Dennis Berardi. Yeah. Dennis Berardi, that's his name. So Dennis came and he said, oh yeah, I like this, we'll, we'll put him in the stores. So he ordered and it made the trip worthwhile. And uh, then I was doing, uh, well, this is kind of hard to describe all this stuff, but at Larry DiMarzio became a friend of mine because I needed pickups. I collected old PAF pickups. I needed to have them repaired. Uh, they were often broken. I sent them to Larry. He'd fix them. And, uh, uh, and then uh, I put them in guitars. And uh, then he sent me an early pickup that he had made from scratch. And he said, uh, oh, you're building guitars. Why don't you try to put these in your guitars? So the first few guitars I built had original PAFs in them because uh, I wanted that sound. But then Larry made this pickup that sounded very close to a, an original PAF. And so I started trying to get pickups out of him, and he was making them by hand and couldn't make them fast enough, you know. But uh, so once he ramped production up, he wanted to go to NAMM. And he said, Paul, I'm going to the NAMM show. And I said, oh, uh, mind if I tag along? And I'll share the booth with you, which is probably illegal now. <laughs> it was maybe even illegal then. But uh, we shared the booth together and uh, started getting business. And then uh, we ended up going to uh, the Frankfurt Mesa, and we shared a booth in Frankfurt. And then the following year, uh, I did the booths myself. And, but I, I was grateful to him for uh, helping me out and allowing me to share. You know, I have this interesting thought that um, big names in the music products industry, when you go along to the NAMM show and you see Fender and you see BC Rich, and Hamer, these are names that are quintessential to the development of rock and roll and hair metal bands and, you know, uh, bands of the 80s and 90s when I was growing up. And I just remember the first time I heard about Hamer was through Ch uh, Cheap Trick and Rick Nielsen and, um, and how like sort of legendary that is. I mean, you know, not just anybody who's a big rock star is going to just pick up any old instrument. You know, it has to be something that they love and feel and all that. And so, keep seeing 
BC Rich and and um, some of the others like Hamer, the first time I went through the NAM show, I thought, oh my gosh, that's it. There it is. There's the <laughs> Holy Grail. That's where. And then to meet the guy behind all that was even more thrilling for me. So um, one of the things that just just kind of ironic and I think important to to point out is this all started because one guy had an interest. You know, I want to teach the guitar, which he started out doing, uh, and wow, I think I can improve on this. And wouldn't it be neat to have my own headstock? And oh, I probably could. I mean, that's really kind of what goes through this guy's mind. And, and it happens time and time again. And walking through the NAM show, you see that innovation, you know, and the ideas behind the people who are standing in those booths. And those could very well be the next big names in five years or whatever. And I wasn't around in the 80s walking through when he was first developing or the 70s. Uh, but I can get the idea that he was in there plugging away, you know, and, and hey, you guys got to check this out. And I know this looks weird and I know this is not the right material, but this is going to make this awesome sound. And, uh, you know, just thinking about him starting his own shop uh, in Winnette, um it was, I think, 1973. Think about that. I mean, just um, we're celebrating the uh, 50th anniversary of Woodstock not long ago. And, you know, that whole era of music was still very, very vibrant. And yet this is a totally different sound that this instrument that he's creating is going to support, you know, much more hair metal bands and 80s rock bands, you know, that hadn't even been an idea yet. And yet these are the instruments that are developing. They're going to be sort of one in the same with that era of music. And that's always been very fascinating to me. And so to hear Paul talking about this as, oh, yeah, and then this happened. And oh, yeah, and then I had this idea. It's like, wait, 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 how did you come up with that idea? I don't know. I was just sitting around and thought if I tuned it this way, it would be different. <laughs> yeah, he was right. Well, it's the same with a lot of people that you've interviewed. It's you've heard of these instruments and these ideas and these projects and all that. And you, you think that, oh, there's no way that just one person could have started this or thought of it in the beginning. or And then you hear the story and you're blown away to hear, oh, yeah, it was just a guy and he wanted to make a thing and he did. And it's yeah. great and it sold really well. And now everybody knows about it because of how well it did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think, you know, what does... Um Bad Company and Judas Priest and <laughs> Jeff Tall all have in common? Paul Hamer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. This is a perfect transition into the next segment we're going to hear about. Um, Paul's going to be talking about some of the lessons that he learned in the music industry and uh, some of the struggles that he had to go through uh, in order to save his company. So in terms of lessons in, 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 the, in the music industry, so like uh, I was really tuned into the... Um, musicians. And I thought that, well, that's where the action is, you know. Uh, and the retailers that I was selling to, I didn't, I don't know that I had a sense of what their problems were at that time, what they were dealing with in selling the products. I just thought to myself, hey, the world's greatest musicians are playing these things, everybody else should too. And uh, I happened to, uh, a, a guy came into my office one day and he said, uh, hey, Paul, I want to work for your company. And it was a man by the name of Jeffrey Cardozo. And he had worked for Roland and he had worked for MXR. 
And these were companies that were nothing when he started with them and then just exploded on the scene and uh, were very important. So uh, I said, okay. So he started working for me and um, in the, he started working for me maybe 79 or so. And it was right on uh, at the cusp of a recession. So that I don't know if you remember. I don't, were you, I don't know how old you are, but at that time there was a recession from like eighty to eighty-two. It was really bad, and uh, interest rates were excruciatingly high. Costs were going uh, out of control, and this guy Jeffrey Cardozo was on the road for me, and he'd come back and go, "I got nothing." I go, wait a second, you're just on the road for two weeks. How can you come back with nothing, you know? So I started blaming him for my problems, you know? And he said, Paul, you gotta come with me. You gotta come out on the road with me. And I said, uh, okay. He bugged me enough about it that I said, all right, I'll come out with you. We get in the car, we drive from Chicago to Atlanta. One fell swoop, straight through. We wake up in the morning, and I said to Jeff, I said, okay, let's, let's get, get going. Let's go see the first dealer. He goes, pause, nine o'clock. They don't, they don't open until 10. I said, okay, well, we'll get there early and we'll do our business and we'll go. And he was like, oh, okay, because I'm the boss, right? He goes, well, we shouldn't do this. I said, no, let's get going and we'll see as many dealers as we can. So we go there at 10 o'clock in the morning is George Luther at Rhythm City. Do you know George? Yeah. Did you know George? Well, he is a legend, a legend in the music industry, and he was the world's nicest guy. And he had what I thought was the, with the greatest schedule of all time, which was he would stay at home doing books all morning and all afternoon. And right around 5 o'clock, he'd come into the store. And Jeff was trying to tell me that the time you do business with George is at six o'clock when he closes the store. So you can wait around the store all you want, but he's not going to talk to you. He's just way too busy, which was the case. And I'm the whole day I'm waiting and I go, let's go. No, we got to wait for George. Oh, come on, come on. We can't spend the whole day in one music store. Uh, Jeff, come on, let's just get going. He goes, no, we're going to wait for George. And so uh, George gets there. It's 545. Store closes in 15 minutes. Jeff says, I got to go. We were here all day. Now you're leaving? He goes, no, you wait here. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Runs across the street. He buys two bottles of chilled champagne and some plastic cups. And he comes back in the store. And he pops the champagne open and starts giving George champagne. And I was like, <laughs> wait, this is how you conduct business? Don't you just get out the order pad and go, how many you want? And check it off and then leave? So it turned out that uh, George was, uh, he was a super nice guy and he really knew the business. And what George wanted uh, and what Jeffrey understood was that the inventory control is critical to these stores. So at six o'clock, Jeff goes, and I would have never done this, and never in a thousand years, he goes, what's not selling in the Hamer line? George goes, well, I've had this one for six months. I've had this one for nine months. I've had th this one selling. And Jeff goes, great, I'll take all those back. Get your guys to put them in the cases. I'll give you, I'll give you credit. 
now let's get you some stuff you can sell. And I was like, wait, this is a neg deal, right? Neg deals are not good. And Jeff goes, trust me, this will be good. So he takes all the guitars, we put them in the, in the van, drive to the next, next uh, place. Jeff goes, I got some great deals on some guitars. Uh, I'm going to super discount, you know. And slowly, through the course of this trip, he buys, sells, trades guitars that, that the retailer has decided that they want. They make the choice, right? This one's selling in my neighborhood. Well, it wasn't selling in Atlanta, but it would sell in, uh, in Tallahassee, you know. So and by the end of the trip, we had a very successful trip. All the retailers were happy, and Jeff had taught me a really important lesson, that the, the retailer is critical. And something had happened to me uh, in a negative way a few years before that, which was there was a kid in Colorado that had bought a guitar and he wasn't happy with it, and he sent it back, and I said, okay, well, we'll, we'll work on it, you know. We worked on it, I couldn't find anything wrong with it, I sent it back to him. Uh, he didn't like it. He sent it back again. And it came back like three or four times. And finally I said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with this guitar. You know, I, I can't help you anymore. And uh, so this kid made it a point to go to every music store in Colorado and tell them never to buy Hamer guitars again. And they never did. One angry customer. So I see Jeff... Uh, the way he worked with the retailers. And I was like, oh, the, this is the way to do it. You know what I mean? You make people happy. You understand their needs, their wants, and you supply that. You, uh, that's what they need help, you know? And so I never forgot that lesson, and it was the most important thing to me. And I, I've been able to utilize that throughout the rest of my life, no matter what situation I'm in. I think about Cardozo. <laughs> I called him Carzo because uh, Rick Nielsen's son had an imaginary friend named Carzo. So I'd go, always call him, hey Carzo, what's going on? And so I just learned this really important lesson and it's just held me in good stead. That's kind of a long story, but... Oh, that's fantastic. Very interesting. That's crazy. So did uh, George wind up buying uh, your line back? Oh yeah, no, George was a big dealer for me and, and I adopted Jeff's... Uh, sales techniques because in in 82 it got so bad the interest rate that i was paying on on my loans in my business was was 16 percent and so I, I had to let him go i said jeff i i have no money i can't pay you anymore and uh so i had i had to let him go and uh i took the job on myself so what i would do um this is really bad on my family but I had to save my company. There was, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I had my whole life invested in this, and if it went down, it would not be good for anybody. So uh, I thought, Carzo's got the right idea. I had bought him a company car, and so he gave it back to me. And uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to do a Carzo. So I would drive to, say, New York City and I would visit the area. I'd leave my car at the airport full of guitars, and I'd 
fly back home. And I'd go for two weeks. I'd be out for two weeks, back for two weeks. And I did this all over the country, and I had this, this uh, I started, <laughs> uh, uh, Elizabeth and I were talking about uh, weather in San Diego, and so I ended up getting this uh, schedule, this national schedule, where I would go to the places that had the coolest weather at the time that I, that I wanted to go there, you know. And so, like, I'd always go skiing in uh, Canada in the first week of December, because I'd go see the Canadian dealers. And uh, I was always in San Diego when, the, when it was cold up here, in Florida when it was cold up here. And so, and I, I'd go for two weeks at a time, and my car would just travel around the country. And I never had uh, anything stolen out of the back of the car. I'd put a blanket over everything, you know, leave it in the airport parking lot, leave, pay for two weeks of parking, which wasn't cheap, but... Uh, and then if I needed more guitars sent, if I, if the, if I was running low, I would send them to the, a music store that I was going to visit and say, hey, could you guys hold on these these for me? And uh, I'll pick them up when I get there. And then uh, I started doing uh, guitar clinics for the retailers. And it was an idea that I had as a kid um, uh, in when I had the store in Wilmette and making guitars, I did a guitar clinic with Martin Barr at Jethro Tull at his coffee house there. It went over really well, and the people just loved. In those days, you never met anybody famous. You know, they just didn't, they, they came to do the show, they left. They didn't do in-stores, they didn't do records, because they didn't need any of that stuff. They were selling as many records as the, as the plant could produce, and they, you know, they had shows to do. So they didn't, you didn't meet somebody famous. So uh, the kids just went nuts for meeting him. So I started doing Martin Barr clinics in different places, and then Sammy and Richie Ash did them in uh, New York City, and uh, we did them at uh, Ace Music in Florida. We did them at uh, we did three or four of them with him in Florida because uh, he had family there. He liked to spend part of the winters there, so it was a good excuse to get out and and do something. And then, so I started do, taking that idea and doing it for retailers and explaining the guitars to the kids. And, and uh, that was really good because uh, the kids just took a really, really, real interest in whatever uh, uh, I had to say. And I think they learned something about guitar and guitar building. And even if they didn't buy a Hamer guitar, they could take that information and apply it to whatever they were looking at, you know, whatever they liked. So it was good. It was good for the retailers, uh, and it was really good for me. Uh, and so that was so something else that, was, that other people weren't doing. So once again, that was Paul talking about some of the lessons he learned in the music industry, um, as well as talking about clinics a little bit there at the end. Um, this next section we're going to go into is really cool. Um, we're going to get into talking about some of the more famous guitars that Paul has built, some of his more high-end clients, um, and it's just amazing stories. I'm not going to do any justice talking about it, so let's just hear from Paul. <laughs> so how did the um, product line develop, your different models and so on? Um, yeah, that kind of developed out of desperation, really. You know, when 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 something wasn't wasn't going, we had to come up with a new idea. You know, and uh, but of course there were the there were the elements that were musician driven, and then there were the elements that were. You know, what's the, there's a price point that that the kids want, that you know, eight ninety five is a good price point. 
what can we do in this price point that's going to be a great instrument and what, what do we need to change to be able to get it in this price point. And uh, it turned out we sold the guitars way too cheaply. I just had no idea of how manufacturers price stuff. And I was a manufacturer. <laughs> Where were they being made? Well, it uh, started out uh, in, uh, uh, in Wilmette, and then uh, moved to Palatine, and then finally the big plant in Arlington Heights. One of the things uh, I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, and you've mentioned them throughout, is Rick Nielsen. How did you guys get together for his the famous guitars of yours that he was playing? Uh, well, you know, I, uh, I started, I was a guitar collector, and uh, he was a guitar collector. And um, one time a kid came to me and he said, I want to, I want to buy a Sunburst Les Paul and I have whatever amount I need to buy it. Do you know where I can buy one? And I thought for a minute, I thought, wait, the guitar player in Fuse uh, played a Sunburst Les Paul. Um, and I know they broke up. I wonder if that guitar is for sale. So uh, I belong to the Waukegan Musicians Union. And the Waukegan Musicians Union would, uh, was the least expensive union you could join. Because if you joined Chicago, the dues were way high. And so uh, Gary and I both joined the Waukegan uh, Musicians Union. And they would send out a newsletter every month. And in this newsletter, one day there was an ad that said, uh, Mellotron for sale, uh, an 815 telephone number, uh, Rockford. And so I thought, keyboards. I wonder if that's that kid from, uh, from Fuse, because they were from Rockford. And uh, so I called the number, and it was Rick's dad's house. And uh, Mr. Nielsen said he gave me Rick's phone number because he was living in Philadelphia. And I called Rick, and I, uh, I said, hey, uh, do you know the number of the guitar player that was in the band with you that had that Sunburst Les Ball? Do you think he might sell it? He goes, oh, that's my guitar. I let him play it. He borrowed it from me. And so I said, well, do you want to sell it? He goes, yeah, I'll sell it. So uh, I flew to Philadelphia. I bought the guitar, came back home. I sold it. It was the money that helped me uh, start the guitar company, you know, gave me a little savings in the bank. And it allowed Rick to move back to Rockford uh, with his wife, and they had their first son born in Rockford, and they've never left. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, that, that was the time uh, that where I had spent the most amount of time with them, because it was over a weekend, and they were the coolest guys. In Philadelphia, they were cool. You know, they, they were funny, they were uh, on top of everything, they were musical, they were... Even, to, they're the same way today, you know. Uh, 40, 50 years on, uh, they're the same guys, the same, the same wonderful uh, uh, personalities, you know, they're really nice people. They're grounded, you know. Because they've had to fight for it all the time. What about the multiple neck? guitars. 
Oh, that's a, um, that's a good story. So, um, one time uh, Rick would call me and he would always start this uh, conversation the same. He'd go, all right, Paul, the ultimate. And I go, hey, Rick, the ultimate. And uh, so we adopted the ultimate as our slogan and then BMW had the same <laughs> slogan later on. So, but anyway, uh, so uh, he gave me the idea for that, that slogan. And that's what I said on our t-shirt. said the ultimate on the front and Hamer guitars on the back. So uh, we started giving these t-shirts out to all the musicians that we would uh, meet. And uh, then they'd get their pictures taken in Circus Magazine with wearing these t-shirts. And so that was, when Rick saw that, he said, hey, why don't I give you some uh, cheap trick shirts and you give them out to anybody that you see. So one time uh, the guys in Bad Company had flown me out to Los Angeles to, uh, I spent a week with them uh, while they were rehearsing for their tour and they designed some guitars with me and I gave them cheap trick shirts. And a couple weeks later, they're in Circus Magazine with the cheap trick shirts on. And then uh, they started appearing in English uh, newspapers with cheap trick shirts on. And so very early on, people are going, what's cheap trick? What's the ultimate, you know? So, so that was good. Wait, what was the question again? <laughs> the multiple necks. Oh, the multiple necks, yeah. So I would call Rick, he would call me, and uh, one time he called and I said, hey, he mentions, he said, I'm ambidextrous. I said, what, you're ambidextrous? Yeah, I can do the same thing with both hands. I said, oh, cool. I'll tell you what, why don't we build a guitar for you where you walk to one side of the stage with a neck playing, and then you walk to the other side of the stage with a neck playing. He goes, well, that's a pretty good idea. But he didn't go for it, you know. So then a few weeks later he calls up and I say, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we build a guitar where one neck works, but we put necks coming out everywhere that don't really function, you know. It just looked crazy, you know. He goes, nah. That's not good. And so what was going on in those days was uh, everybody played, uh, well, he, he, I don't know if this is fair to say, but there were people that we thought of as pre pretentious musicians, you know. And uh, there was a lot of double necks being played. And uh, so Rick said, I got an idea. What would be the most pretentious instrument I could, I could think of? Five necks. Each one has a different function. I said, okay, let's do it. And that's how it, it was his idea. Of course, it's always his idea. <laughs> that's awesome. So did you wind up making multiple of those or was it just for him? Oh, uh, no, no one ever ordered one. Uh, <laughs> but we've, we had to make multiples of that for him. Oh, yeah. but no one ever ordered one. Yeah, no that's one. It, it's insane. It's, it weighs a ton. I don't know how, I don't know how he does it today. He, he has that guitar out on stage, and at one point of the show, he flips it up in the air and he plays it with his teeth, and I'm how can you do that? I can't do that. I couldn't even pick it up. Today, I couldn't pick it up. Not possible. <laughs> so what to you were some of the milestones of the success of the Hamer guitar? Well, I mean, uh, I think, uh, I was able to keep it going uh, 
for because I had an idea that I wanted to be an international company. And what I learned really early on, I don't know if it's true today, but in, in the 70s and 80s it was definitely true, that when there was a recession in America, it was okay in Europe and Australia and New Zealand. And when America was booming, then these countries were in recession. So um, I, that's why I wanted to go to the Frankfurt Messe uh, to, to begin selling in Europe. And, uh, uh, and so this, this really held me in good stead uh, to try to keep things on an even keel. And, uh, you know, NAM was, uh, was also an international destination. So occasionally you'd get, you'd get retailers from other parts of the world coming in. And, and that was good. Yeah, that's really neat. It's amazing how that's changed. Mm. I was thinking recently about that too. Remember, if things were really tight here, you could usually get a pretty good deal flights or you know hotels right 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 yeah somewhere else yeah so how did your dealer base grow um internationally did you just do that mostly at uh, frankfurt um well there was uh, a friend of mine from high school who i brought into the company who spoke german and he was really critical in in getting uh Germans on board, and Germany was a big European market. And uh, so he started off uh, going to Germany and uh, not on the, not on a, for the Mesa, but he'd go there to see the dealers. Mm. And uh, that was really critical for us. So, you know, uh, and then both he and I would, uh, so I had this, this concept in America of driving guitars, visiting dealers. So we did that in Germany. I did that in Germany too. I did it in England, New Zealand, and Australia of uh, going to the dealers with product and uh, conducting business right there. And that was, that was really important for us uh, uh, to stay in business. So originally when I was thinking about this interview, I would say that one word came to mind whenever I thought of Paul Hamer, and that would be happy. He is hmm. a happy, happy guy. But now, after talking to you guys, I think innovative. He is loves what he does, and he's good at it. He he's a smart guy. Yeah, yeah he's a, and he's combined both those things, his happiness, his passion for music, and his brilliance. And I think that um, the products show that. Even the silly, you know, seven-neck guitar shows some major innovation. That's a good point because you could make something like that and make it totally unplayable and just kind of like an art piece, and people would still think it's cool. But he made it, you know, playable, yeah. very playable. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's cool stuff, no doubt. And I, I appreciate you saying that, Michelle, because I too felt like it was sort of a joy to be around him, you know, and to hear his stories, but to sort of know this guy and, you know, and, and I think that that's part of the endearing quality of passionate people, I guess, you know, especially in the music industry. And so it was really neat to, uh, to have that opportunity and now to share it with you guys. So what happened to the company? Well, 1988, 
was uh, a lot of tough competition and uh, I wasn't getting along with uh, some others in the company. They didn't see things my way. Uh, I didn't see things their way. So the only way to, to amicably deal with that was to sell the company. And it was a terrible time. Um, they said some really unkind things about me. But uh, I was the face of the company and uh, it just didn't work out. And so we ended up selling it, but it ended up being the best thing for me in the end because uh, uh, I, uh, I got a nice pile of cash and uh, I moved back to Oak Park where I was from originally. I started buying apartment buildings and I was telling Elizabeth buying kind of eclectic old buildings and restoring them. I won two uh, Oak Park Historic Preservation Awards for doing it and uh, I still own all the properties today so I'm a slumlord. And um, in one of the buildings that I bought there was a little picture frame store and it was owned by an old Lithuanian guy and he got sick one day and he said, Paul, I, I want to I wanna retire but I'm, I need somebody to buy my business. I said, wait, wood? Picture frames? <laughs> I'll buy your business. And so uh, we worked out a price where both sides were unhappy. That means it's a good deal. <laughs> and uh, I thought I paid too much. He thought I didn't pay enough. And uh, so uh, now I have uh, two picture frame stores in Oak Park and Emmiston. Then I have uh, the, all the buildings. And then uh, my kids and I started building guitars again. Yeah, when did that happen? Well, about three years ago, my kids came to me and they said, Dad, you should build guitars. I'm like, build guitars? Well, I got nothing. <laughs> and now, Dad, you should build guitars, come on. And uh, so my son, oldest son's an architect. My uh, daughter is a, just a fabulous graphic designer. And my youngest son works with me in the frame shop and so he does woodworking. And uh, so um, we started uh, uh, building a prototype, you know. <laughs> Oddly enough, uh, you know, in the framing business, you work with uh, foam, foam core, foam board. And so uh, Alec and I built a prototype out of foam, foam board. And uh, we had been building uh, a lot of mirrors for P California pizza kitchens. So my son designed all their restaurants. And uh, so uh, these mirrors were huge and I couldn't get them out, out of the basement wood shop door. So I needed to find a place where I could c build crates and, and put the mirrors in uh, these big crates. And a friend of mine had just bought a wood shop and he said, well, why don't you use my wood shop? So I got friendly with the guys out there. And suddenly, uh, when the kids said, why don't you build guitars, Dad? I was like, well, I don't have any equipment. I don't have anything. And I thought, oh, wait, this guy's got this wood shop. So we, we go out there, and we do all the rough work there. You know, they have a great bandsaw, a great table saw. And uh, then we bring things back to the uh, basement. And... Uh, build guitars in the basement of the frame shop.
and then uh, I, I uh, took my uh, great-grandfather's garage, turned it into a spray booth, <laughs> and, uh, and we spray the guitars in the, in the garage. And uh, so it's, uh, it's really fun. And uh, what was really great uh, this past year was uh, a Cheap Trick got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so I thought, wow, this is, uh, this is really uh, impressive. And so I, uh, I called Rick, and we had already built one guitar for him. And uh, I said, uh, you need a guitar for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show. And I've got this, I've got this idea. I'm, I'm just going to do it and give it you, you know. I said, okay. So... Uh, my, my youngest son, Alec, has really been interested in violins and Stradivarius and the history of Stradivarius and what he did, you know. So we came up with the idea of building the world's first um, violin-style guitar. And uh, so uh, Rick sent me a picture of a vintage, uh, uh, like a... 14th or 15th century guitar that was in a museum in New York City and I didn't know who the maker was but he sent me this photo so I went to their website and it turns out that this guy built violins too so I was flipping through the the violin pictures and suddenly there's a violin with a carved head on the end of the peg head right so I go we got to put Rick's head on the end of this violin guitar so uh, we, did, we built this guitar in six weeks. My good friend Doug Frierkson, he's, a, he's a, a carver, and he carved Rick's head. And uh, uh, we, we found a 400-year-old piece of Sitka spruce, one piece for the top, and uh, the, the number of rings that end up being, uh, it came from a 400-year-old piece, and it, uh, the number of rings on the guitar are 226 years of growth on a single piece of wood. The back is curly maple, the neck is curly maple, and uh, then we, uh, we engraved in the fingerboard uh, cheap, uh, cheap Trick Hall of Fame, Rick 2016. And uh, we delivered it to him just before the show in New York City, and uh, I... Uh, I flew myself, uh, entire family, to the uh, Hall of Fame show. And it just happened that Martin Barr's Jethro Tull was playing at B.B. King's in New York City the same weekend. And so we just had this great all-music weekend with all my old friends. And just to see Rick and the band on stage at the Hall of Fame, oh, it was just fantastic. And my grandkids got to see this, and so I'm hoping... Yeah. Maybe it'll kick in, you know. So that was really, really, really fun. That's fantastic. So what is the name of the new guitars? H. H. It's the English pronunciation of H. <laughs> My daughter came up with it, and so she came up with this logo that's a lowercase H. So that's really good. I'll show you some pictures yeah. after we finish talking I'll show you some pictures okay but one thing I did want to tell you about uh, about music and for me anyway uh, how music 
can come full circle. So with this, with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show, that was big for me. But also, you know, I started out watching the Beatles, and um, one of the great things that happened to me was that Rick got um, invited to do the Lennon sessions for the Double Fantasy record. And so uh, he went to New York City and uh, one day he calls me and goes, uh, hey, Lennon really likes the sound of my guitar. I go, let's build a guitar for him. He goes, okay, great. <laughs> so like in three weeks, I built a guitar for him, sent it off to New York City, and one of the things I did was, I know that he used to like to play this uh, Rickenbacker. It was kind of a short scale Rickenbacker guitar. Had three pickups on it. And I thought to myself, if I make this neck really skinny, like that Rickenbacker, you know, he might, he might appreciate it. And so uh, Rick gave him the guitar during the sessions. He played it all throughout the sessions. He's photographed, many photographs with him playing it. And uh, it's in the Double Fantasy movie. and. To me, that that was the that was one of the was the first full circle moment for me was like, wow, this is my hero. I saw him when I was twelve, and now I built a guitar for him. And then uh, one day I was I was in uh, England. Uh, my wife and I were at Martin Barr's house for a christening. He had a beautiful estate in uh, Devon, and. Uh, he goes, uh, Paul, I just finished a session with McCartney. I was a week recording with him at his studio. He goes, uh, he really liked the guitar. He wants you to build him one. Here's his phone number. Call the roadie. The roadie's name is Bob or something. So uh, I go, oh, great. I'll, you know, I'll call him when I get back to the States. He goes, no, call him now. I go, we're in the kitchen. You want me to call him? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's important. So I said, okay. So while everybody's there, I call up the studio line and somebody answers and I go, uh, uh, hi, is uh, Bob the roadie there? <laughs> and the guy goes, who's calling? So this is Paul Hamer. He goes, oh, Paul, this is Paul. It was McCartney. And I'm like, I'm holding the phone and I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm talking to Paul McCartney. This is unbelievable. So he ordered a guitar. <laughs> and. Uh, Previous to that, I had been in a little town in England uh, at a music store, trying to sell my wares, you know. And uh, this, the owner of the store goes, uh, hey, you know, George Harrison lives around the corner here. He, he buys stuff every once in a while from us. I go, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. He goes, uh, yeah, he's got a really good friend. His name's Brian Roylance. I go, oh yeah. He goes, uh, Brian's going to be here in a few minutes. Why don't you talk to him? So Brian uh, comes in and I go, uh, hey, Brian, I'd really love to do a guitar for George. I said, I got one with me that I think would really be great. And uh, he said, oh, okay. Uh, let me take it to him. So uh, he ended up ordering another one. And it turned out that Brian Roylance was a, a guy that was really into old books and into book publishing. And he um, was publishing at the time uh, Harrison's I, Me, Mine 
in a deluxe signed edition. I don't know if you've ever seen this. This is a gorgeous book. And uh, so I got a couple copies of that. Uh, and it, it turned out it was just a nice circular relationship. And now uh, Brian died and uh, his kids have taken over the business and they're doing, still doing great books. So I'm a book collector, so I thought, ah, oh, that's very, really cool, nice to... So I ended up building guitars for three of the Beatles, and that was just, I mean, to this day, it's, it's just a knockout for me to think about that and the full circle nature of the business. It's amazing. It's absolutely fascinating. Well, this has been great. I wish we had all day. Oh, no, that, yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I can talk all day. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, for you're welcome, Dan. Time. Thank you. Great stuff. I want to thank everybody for listening today. I think it's a, an awesome opportunity that Paul gave all of us to uh, sit down and chat, talk about his career. I'm very honored that uh, it's part of the NAM Oral History Program and that you guys sat down today to uh, to play it for everybody. Yeah, thank I you. thought this was a great interview. Um, Paul Hammer's definitely up there and one of the greats in the products and products industry um, for innovation, just like Michelle said. Um, some great stuff, and I'm glad Dan was able to get the interview, and we had time to talk about it today. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Michelle Shedler, and Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.